the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside. Good evening and welcome to the Science Inside, where we bring you the latest news and stories happening around the world of science and technology. Well, I am your host, Bridget Libere, and this week we are focusing on climate change. And as you've heard the stories in the news that we need to take a really serious stance towards combating uh, climate change and its effects on South Africa. And uh, we are seeing the harsh realities as we speak. Climatic extremes are impacting both water quality and availability through changes in rainfall patterns where we are now seeing more intense storms, floods and droughts. And of course we see changes in soil uh, moisture and runoffs and the effects of increasing evaporation and evaporation rather and changing temperatures on aquatic systems. Climate change is already a measurable reality posing significant, significant uh, social, economic and environmental risks. And these are challenges that are seen globally. And like many other developing countries, South Africa is especially vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And the following clip is from the Vitz Global Institute of Change, unpacking some of the important facts that drive climate change. South Africa has never been hotter and every year hits new record temperatures. For every 2 degrees Celsius that the Earth warms, parts of South Africa will warm by 4 degrees. That's right. South Africa's interior warms at twice the global rate. How severely our climate changes will depend on how much more greenhouse gases, carbon for short, humanity emits into the atmosphere, particularly how much more fossil fuels we burn. Governments across the world agree that global temperatures must not rise by more than 2 degrees Celsius to preserve life as we know it. The science is clear that humanity needs to become carbon neutral by the second half of the century. To play our part in saving the world, South Africa needs to decide how we'll get to the low carbon path we want to be on by 2050. Right now, we're putting about 550 megatons of CO2 equivalent into the atmosphere. By 2021, this figure is expected to be closer to 600 megatons due to an increase in fossil fuel consumption per capita from cars, industry, electricity, agriculture and so forth. But carbon emissions accumulate over time, which means the effects of our addiction to carbon become worse every year. Ideally, South Africa needs to keep its cumulative carbon emissions to 12,000 megatons to help prevent temperatures from rising too much. Think of those 12,000 megatons as our carbon budget. That's all we have to spend, and we'll need to plan our spending very carefully. We need to get on a low-carbon pathway as soon as possible to make sure our carbon emissions stop increasing by around 2021 if we want to reach the 2050 target. But how do we get there? Do we try to keep our emissions stable for a few years and then leave it up to our children to decarbonize? Or do we stop burning fossil fuels and switch to renewable energies like wind and solar now to leave some emission space for future generations? Either way, our carbon emissions must be cut. If we don't, temperatures could increase dramatically, which would result in crop failures, increased food insecurity, decreased productivity, increased levels of poverty, more health issues and greater stress on our economy. Delaying the decline in emissions would use up South Africa's carbon budget quickly, leaving very little emission space for the next generation. Cutting emissions as soon as possible would give us the best chance for a sustainable future. The policymakers in charge of mapping South Africa's low-carbon pathway needs input from the public to help them make informed decisions. The time for all of us to decide our future is now.
Now we are going to the news with Lindo Gutlietimakwe. This is Science Headline. Good evening, I'm Lindo Gutlietimakwe, and in your news making headlines this week, 18-year-old invests mind-controlled prosthetic hand and an urgent call by international scientists to tackle climate change. A grade 11 World School Swayze Renique pupil is hoping to find a way to help amputees to not spend hundreds of thousands of rand on prosthetics. Farida Kaji, an 18-year-old from the Northwest, has invented a mind-controlled 3D prosthetic hand that aims to be a cheaper prosthetic alternative. A prosthesis is an artificial device that replaces a missing body part which may be lost through trauma, disease or a condition present at birth known as congenital disorder. Prostheses are intended to restore the normal functions of the missing body part. So basically the main idea that I had was to make a difference but Mm. also uh, you know, win big because this was for a project for a competition. I didn't just want to do it for the competition. I actually wanted to make a difference because this was a platform to start on. So one day my mom uh, was helping me. We were brainstorming a bit and she said, why don't you go into the medical field because you like the medical field and then just Google, go ahead and just Google what is the most expensive thing, what is the most expensive but the most needed. And when I Googled it, I realized that it was actually prosthetics and Mm. that so many people were actually forced to live without prosthetics because they couldn't afford it. So then I decided, okay, that's a good idea. I can start with that. But everyone makes prosthetics. It's not a new thing. So how do I make mine different? And how do I keep it? Body-powered or cable-operated limbs work by attaching a harness and a cable around the opposite shoulder of the damaged arm. The third category of prosthetic devices available are myoelectric arms. The operation is by sensing via electrodes. Plastic pollution has become one of the most pressing environmental issues as rapidly increasing production of disposable plastic products overwhelms the world's ability to deal with them. Plastic pollution is most visible in developing Asian and African nations where garbage collection systems are rather often inefficient or non-existent. However, the developed world, especially in countries with low recycling rates, also has trouble with properly collecting discarded plastics. Plastic trash has become so ubiquitous, it has prompted efforts to write a global treaty negotiated by the United Nations. Um, uh, 3D printed from recycled plastic waste. Mm. That is the most important part. It's printed from recycled materials. No other hand has been printed from recycled material. Or as far as I am concerned, no other hand has. Then the other part is the decrease of the cost plays the biggest role because that was one of my main problems I was trying to address. And because it's so cheap, it's actually, you know, it's actually affordable. affordable. People can actually use it. People can actually buy it. And that was something that really caught the attention of a lot of people, especially amputees, because over the past few weeks I've been getting amputees calling me and asking, you know what, can I please be mm-hmm. your test? Can you come and put it on me? Let me see if I can use it because I can't afford it. 
Expo for Young Scientists helps in developing research skills and stimulates the passion for science among school learners and university undergraduates. The initiative is dedicated to creating young scientists and engineers through the positive learning experience and amazing practical skills. This not only provides opportunities for the young minds, but provides a platform from, for growth through various forms of assistance. I couldn't eat without the help of sponsors like Big Ideas 3D. They printed the hand for free which actually was quite a lot of money for me to just spend on a project. And then uh, Rapid Studios, m- m- my sponsors, um, I think they are on on Facebook. You can ch- see there's a picture of them there. Mm-hmm. They basically helped a lot, covering a lot of the costs, printing things for free, doing things for free. And that's mainly why the project is here, because I wouldn't have that kind of money. I wouldn't have 9,000 rand plus extras to create this project. So they helped me print it, produce it, print the work, and so on. And then the other help was obviously my dad and my brother-in-law. Farida won a gold medal at the Science Expo and was crowned the best female project, and her main goal of lowering medical costs was achieved. As it stands, her invention costs 9,000 rand, while a regular below-elbow prosthetic in South Africa costs anything from 140,000 upwards. So I'm I'm actually taking it one day at a time and waiting for to hear from other people that are currently trying to help me. Firstly, I'd like to just uh, patiently and peacefully take part in the next round of the ESCOM Expo. And then after that, uh, we can see what happens. But I don't want to just put this. I actually do want to get this into production. And on to our next story. An internationally respected group of scientists, including Professor Franco Engelbrecht from the University of Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, have urgently called on world leaders to accelerate efforts to tackle climate change. Almost every aspect of the planet's environment and ecology is undergoing changes in response to climate change, some of which will be profound, if not catastrophic, in the future. According to their study published in Science Today, reducing the magnitude of climate change is also a good investment. Over the next few decades, acting to reduce climate Climate change is expected to cost much less than the damage otherwise inflicted by climate change on people, infrastructure and ecosystems. The research is being published only a few days ahead of the UN Climate Change Week in New York, in which international governments, business and academic institutions and non-profit organizations, amongst others, will be discussing the impacts of climate change on a global basis. Social activists from the Cooperative and Policy Alternative Center short and short known as COPAC, Courtney Morgan with more. From COPAC and we're standing here today not only to tell Cecil that we're not happy with them. We're not only here to tell our government that we're not happy with them. We are here to show solidarity with communities who have been fighting this fight for decades. We stand in solidarity with the poor black communities whose land is being taken from them by mining communities and companies like Cecil. These communities are sick with cancers and other respiratory issues because of their pollution. It is also these same communities that are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Climate shocks hit the poor first and most severely. This does not start and end here with us standing in Santon. We are here to amplify the voices of those who have come before us. We are also here in solidarity with children, with young people, who are standing and fighting for our future and for our survival. And while we stand here in solidarity, it is important to have these interventions and to critique and to protest 
but we must always center alternatives. It is good to know what must fall, but what is rising? We are rising, the young people are rising, communities are rising. And for us at COPAC, it's food sovereignty, which gives people autonomy over their food systems. It's socially owned renewables, not corporate owned renewables. We don't want that either. We want socially community owned renewables, which not only changes and shifts us to a new energy system, but it shifts us to a new ownership system. And finally, it's eco-socialism. And that's the future we see, and it's a future that is within reach, only through people's power. Developing countries are especially vulnerable to climate change impacts, says the co-author and professor in climatology at the Global Change Institute of the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa, Francois Engelbrecht. Engelbrecht em emphasizes that by restricting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, future risks posed by droughts and heat waves to the region can be reduced. At higher levels of global warming, these risks are substantially higher and more frequently occurring multi-year droughts may bring tipping points to the region in terms of water security, agriculture and livestock production. This is what Michelle Black from a student organization for the climate change in Africa called the Shop Shop had to say. We have one of the largest youth populations on earth who are lost, disenfranchised and politically uninvolved. We have no political home, no one who comforts our fears or shows us a way out of jobs designed to kill the spirit and, in, and forces us into a society designed to separate us and divide us. Our politicians are uninterested in governing us, friends. This is clear from inaction on gender-based violence and xenophobia and climate change. The time for something new is now. Let us reject Western aspirations and emerge anew into a changing world. Let us announce a new form of eco-socialism, where we ask ourselves again, what is the role of government? Is it to fill the pockets of businessmen or career politicians and poison our air for the sake of profits? Do we need a bullet train or a fourth industrial revolution? Should our government be courting neo-colonial powers only to increase inequality? Or do we have, or do we need to make sure that our people have food and water, the basic ingredients of survival, our most basic needs in abundance and in perpetuity? Let us realign our priorities. South Africans, we have the potential to lead the way. Let us decentralize let us decarbonize and let us socialize for people and for planets. Look out for Shap Shap, a movement for eco-socialism in Africa. These changes are having major consequences. The paper updates a database of climate-related changes and finds that there are significant benefits from avoiding 2 degrees Celsius of global warming and aiming to restrict the increase in global temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial global temperatures. Professor Rachel Warren from the Tynan Centre of at the University of East Anglia in the UK assessed projections of risks for forests, biodiversity, food, crops and other critical systems and found very significant benefits for limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius rather than 2 degrees Celsius. 
A recent report from the United Nations projected that as many as million species may be at risk of extinction over the coming decades and centuries. Climate change is not the only factor, but is one of the most important ones. Professor Michael Taylor, co-author and Dean of Science at the University of the West Indies, says that the urgency of dealing with climate change is not an academic issue, states that it is a matter of life and death. Lastly, Jane Cherry from the South African Food Sovereignty Campaign speaks about how climate change affects food security. The campaign was established in 2015 by small-scale farmers, the landless community organizations, NGOs and the hungry. And as a campaign, we have a shared understanding that we have a corporate and globalized food system that is responsible for worsening social and health challenges. We have an epidemic of obesity in South Africa because, the po- because of the poor quality of food that is available in shops and we have widespread hunger and malnutrition because healthy food is too expensive for many people to access. And on top of that and why we are here today is climate change is making the situation worse. With the recent drought we already saw maize prices increasing by 30%. Climate change means that there will be more droughts more frequently, there will be heat waves, there will be floods and this will impact our ability to grow food in South Africa and on the continent. And what's more, climate change is increasing the burden of those who are already poor and vulnerable. Not only is climate change causing problems in our food system, but the industrialized food system is also heavily responsible for climate change. Up to 23% of greenhouse gas gas emissions come from agriculture, forestry and other land use. So while we are here at Sasol saying that we can't breathe, we also want to say that we can't eat. There are many in our country who are hungry, and if we don't do something about climate change, it's going to get a lot worse. Recapping your stories this hour, 18-year-old invents mind-controlled prosthetic hand and an urgent call by international scientists to tackle climate change. This is Science Headline. This is the Science Inside. So, Bridget, what do you have for your story for us this evening? Well, the story is still based on climate change, and I will be unpacking it in a few minutes. So, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published a 1.5 Celsius degrees report that is a world-recognized effort to reduce the rate at which the Earth's atmosphere is heating up. The report justified and quantified the massive impact that a 1.5 degree reduction would have on the fight against and mitigating risks of climate change. And if all countries in the world were to work together in achieving this goal, climatologist from the Global Institute for Change, Professor Francois Engelbrecht, uh, unpacks the story for us. In the journal Science, a group of authors from this IPCC special report have taken that, that work further, summarizing the latest evidence we have of the benefits we, we can obtain through climate change mitigation. With actual quantifications of the costs needed for this mitigation effort, and on the other hand, the damages we are to incur across the planet in the absence of this mitigation effort. So um, what I will do now is just to briefly summarize some of the main statements from the science paper, which which is quite consistent with what you'll find in the IPCC. And the first is, of course, that in order to restrict global warming, to 1.5 degrees Celsius during the course of this century. Um, We need to act, of course, immediately and very, very strongly. 
The specific number that the report gives is that we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 45% with respect to the 2010 levels by the year 2030. And then we need to continue and we need to reach a carbon neutral work or we also say net zero emissions by the year 2050. The special report in this science paper makes the case that this can still be done in the presence of the right political will. The report never said that this was going to be easy, but even as we sit here today, the science says it can still be done. If we should give up on trying to achieve this aspirational target of the Paris Agreement, and we still pursue what is known as the long-term global goal within the Paris Agreement, which is to restrict the global temperature increase to 2 degrees Celsius, then we are still faced with significant challenges. We must still achieve net zero emissions in that case by the year 2070. So it, it doesn't give us that much more leeway anyway, and then we will run the risk of exceeding 2 degrees Celsius of global warming. The impacts of climate change can already be seen through the evidence of a one degree warmer climate than it already needs to be. And this has brought a range of problems associated with climate change. According to the report, our region in South Africa or in Johannesburg, it's warming at already twice the global rate of warming in temperatures. In the summer of 2015-16, we've seen the warmest summer by far ever recorded in our region, the largest and unprecedented occurrence of heat waves ever recorded. Since then we've had a Cape Town drought. We now have a drought that is already lasting for three years in the Northern Cape and the Eastern Cape. Climate science tells us that the likelihood of these types of droughts to occur, the multi-year droughts, is already three times higher than what it's supposed to be because of the global warming that has already occurred. So how does the future look like? We will see further impacts in our region under 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming. We can't escape further warming. 1.5 degrees for South Africa means over the interior more or less 3 degrees Celsius. So we should expect an enhanced risk in our region in the first place of more frequent heat wave occurrences. That brings more frequent high fire danger days. And unfortunately, these increases in heat wave events go, uh, go along with more increased likelihood of multi-year droughts. With every half a degree or a degree of global warming we add, we are increasing the frequency of these events. To the extent that the science paper and the report states that if we should reach 3 degrees Celsius of global warming, that's more or less 6 degrees Celsius in our region, The maize crop in Southern Africa is no longer sustainable. And the livestock industry, the the cattle industry, Botswana, the Northern Cape, the Limpopo province is no longer sustainable. So we we reach tipping points with respect to many aspects of our agriculture. Johannesburg, as we speak, is two degrees warmer than it was meant to be. But Franco warns that the biggest challenge South Africa could face resulting to the escalating temperatures is increased events of dry drought right down to day zero types of droughts, not only in the winter season, but in the summer months as well. Should we keep to our commitment of reducing greenhouse gas emissions by just at least 1.5 to 2 degrees? Right now we are seeing day zero events occurring across many parts of the Eastern Cape in our country. 
Let me point out that we also face the, the possibility of a day zero type drought occurring in Gauteng. That risk is increasing as the planet is warming. And I think few people realize how close we came to such an event at the end of the 2015-16 drought. So what does our survival or the survival of mankind look like and what would our future prospects also look like in the event that we do not meet the requirements for decreasing the soaring temperatures? In terms of the, the risk of day zero events in, in South Africa, I think this is a major risk in terms of what this can mean in terms of economic growth in our own country and also in terms of the disruptions in our societies. So um, let me point out that we came very, very close to a day zero event in Cape Town, as I think we all know, during the multi-year drought of 2015 to 17. Now, if you should speak to our colleagues in Randwater, they would always point out that even if all the Lesotho dams and all the mega dams in eastern South Africa are 100% full, it gives us water for five years. That is our maximum water security in Gauteng. So all that you need to bring that system to the brink of another day zero event is a multi-year drought that lasts for three or to four years. Now at the end of the 2015-16 drought, Waldam I think was, it was below 20% full. And when it falls to below 15% because of water quality issues, the Gauteng supply is gone. So the rest that, I'm, that I would like to point out is that we run a risk of Gauteng not receiving its full or even any of its water supply from the Lesotho mega dams. This requires more or less four to five years of drought is what can do this. And unfortunately the science described in this paper shows that the risk for that type of drought is on the rise and it will increase with every half a degree or degree of global warming we, we are adding to the system. Such a drought is already within the realms of possibilities and let me point out that in many parts of rural South Africa where you don't have Gharib Dam or an orange Sinku river system or a Waal river system that can help you out through water transports, communities are already running into day zero events. Mitigating climate change will not come easy either. Francois adds that there are a number of sacrifices that we all need to make in reaching the goal of alleviating the burden of climate change. An investment of $3 trillion would need to be invested annually for the next 11 years to transition our energy producing facilities such as ESCOM from fossil fuel dependency to eco-friendlier solutions. The cost is in the order of $100 trillion. But the paper then also shows that just to avoid the damage by 2,200 is in the order of five times more than that investment. It remains true, though, that our generation must make some sacrifices on the short term in order to ensure a sustainable planet and, in fact, promote economic growth for the next generation. That's why I am also so appreciative of the enhanced climate action we are seeing now across the planet and also for the growing youth movement at our university, but also in the country. In addition to mitigating climate change through infrastructure, we also need to invest in climate change adaptation efforts. The return on investments 
will, however, not be conceivable in the foreseeable century. We will have to wait for the turn of a new century to see a dramatic firefall change that we desperately need now. Firstly, around our own region, it is important to realize that our region is already a water-scarce region. So Southern Africa is a warm and dry region. This region is projected to become warmer and drier. That unfortunately means there are limits to adaptation in Southern Africa. We do reach a point where the temperature increase is of such an extent that we can't adapt to it in terms of, in terms of farming sustainably with cattle in our region. The collapse of the maize crop is project, projected around 6 degrees Celsius of regional warming for our region. Remember, for us, us living in Africa and in South Africa, we have our fair share that we must contribute to the global climate change mitigation effort. It is unfortunately also our responsibility to plan for the case where the global climate change mitigation effort fails and we do exceed 1.5 and then 2 degrees Celsius of global warming. In the absence of strong mitigation, the 1.5 degree threshold may be exceeded as soon as the 2030s. We may reach 2 degrees Celsius as soon as, as the 2040s. So in, in terms of mitigation, it is of course investing in the renewable sector at an even larger scale than it is currently happening. Climate change science also tells us that based on current technologies, it seems as if the 1.5 and 2 degree thresholds cannot be achieved without also more or less a three-fold increase in nuclear power generation across the planet. So there's an investment needed in alternative forms of energy. But there's also investments that are needed in order to adapt to the changes that are coming. That one, one example of such an ambitious um, investment would be in desalination plants for the city of Cape But it's also about investing in our systems by which we manage water, by which we transfer water in South Africa. And of course in the field of agriculture there are, there are numerous investments that are possible in terms of crops that are more drought resistant or agricultural practices that are more sustainable. Those are a few examples. Our lifestyles also might need to change from the cars that we drive, the food that we eat. And climate change, according to Francois, might even mean mitigating, force migrating for some people in arid regions of the country. The biggest human migration might no longer be due to economic or political refuge, but for the living, for the life-giving liquid, which is water. If the global climate change mitigation effort should fail, then, of course, aspects of our agriculture for a start becomes unsustainable. So that includes the cattle industry in the Northern Cape, in the Limpopo, and in Botswana for a start. Let me point out that in the 2015 drought, Botswana lost 20% of its cattle, and in 2016 it lost another 20%. There's still about 70% of Botswana's population that has some dependency on cattle the issue around climate change refugees in Africa. I've always thought that maybe the first of these refugees will come from rural Botswana, but then there was the Captain Drown. Maybe the first refugees will be Captain trying to look for water elsewhere. A final comment, I think it is about the sustainability of the growth in our cities. This is being heavily compromised by climate change because of water scarcity. Climate change science tells us is if, if we are going to fail in restricting global warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius, I think we can say that the, that the city of Cape Town 
can no longer grow sustainably because its, its water resource is compromised. There's really no space left to build further dams in the Berg River system. So for Cape Town to grow sustainably in a low mitigation climate change future, it needs an alternative water resource. So it needs a massive intervention, either a huge investment in desalination or alternatively a huge water transport scheme. That's the other idea that's being proposed for, for, for Cape Town. But both of these, of course, are expensive. Uh, the water transfer idea may not be a good idea within the context of more frequently occurring droughts in the region. At least in terms of sustainability, there are major questions for many of our cities across the region. The issue of climate change will also bring about an unprecedented political shift where in the United States an estimated amount of $63 trillion has been put forward to to, uh, decarbonize uh, agendas in transport and agriculture in efforts to mitigate climate change, according to Associate Professor Vishwas Sathar in the International Relations Department at WITS, the rest of the world will be looking at possible breakthroughs from the U.S. as a beacon of hope, which might give us some solutions in the global fight against climate change. And the story was also brought by Professor Francois Engelbrecht from the Global Change Institute here at the University of the Witwatersrand. Unusual Unlikely Unscience It's that time for Unscience and we are looking at the strangest side of research where we take a peek at what scientists take an interest in. This might be silly, sometimes ridiculous and sometimes just outright strange. But what do you have for us on Unscience tonight, Linda? Okay, Brie, honestly, I think it's safe to say that scientists just don't sleep. They're now studying farts literally the mission of gas which is an embarrassment to some and pure comedy to most so are you saying farts have their own interpretations you could say that um a paper led by the university of new south wales which is in short unsw has examined all the available literature on gastrointestinal gases their interactions with the microbiome of their gut their associated disorders and the way that they can be measured and analyzed Wow, I wonder if they really used human farts <laughs> to study this. Uh, but it doesn't really sound out of the ordinary as it would be expected. Well, yeah. The lead author, Professor Kurosh Kalanta Zadeh, says the purpose of the study is to lift the lid on the various gases of the gut and show how vital they are for human health. He basically says that it's about providing knowledge to people about the importance of gases in the gut and that rather than laughing about it or feeling embarrassed about the subject, there's good reason to take this very seriously. Hmm, funny we should be addressing this topic because somebody on Facebook was actually asking who has actually done a story on whether Acha makes your armpits smell or something mm-hmm. like that, right? <laughs> but if you think about it, even Benjamin Franklin wrote about this as one of the first to propose the different types of food that um, that we eat that might have, you know, different effects on our gut health, which can be measured by smelling the results of fats. Mm-hmm. So while Franklin's challenge continues to elude modern um, pharmacology, a change of diet to avoid foods which are obviously rich in sulfide such as broccoli, cauliflower, eggs, beef and garlic could reduce the malodorous nature of our gaseous um, emissions. 
And the smell of heart after eggs, I mean, it is really horrible. So that definitely makes sense. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> so it means in the paper, the authors examine um, the main gases that are found in the gastrointestinal system. Yes, and Professor Kalanta Zadeh says that the gases in most abundance throughout the digestive system, which are nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and hydrogen and methane, are odorless. Um, by contrast, smelly sulfide compound gases exist in you know trace amounts in the colon. So nitrogen and oxygen end up in the gut by being swallowed, and carbon dioxide can be chemically produced in the stomach. Hmm, I can imagine after you've eaten a couple of eggs. So basically the remaining ones are mostly byproducts of this microbi- uh, microbiome. Mm-hmm. So with the exception of nitrogen, the gases found in the intestines have also been linked with various gut diseases, including malabsorption of food, irritable bowel syndromes, inflammatory bowel diseases, and even colon cancer, especially when the gas profile- profiles deviate from the norm. Okay, so it makes sense why this professor would say that these adjustments to our diet is generally the first port of call to mitigate these uh, these disorders as we can modulate the gases by eating different types of food, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So now the UNSW team, together with their partners at the Monash University and startup company Atmo Biosciences, is commercializing a revolutionary tool to analyze the gastrointestinal gases within the body in the form of, you know, the ingestible capsule loaded with gas sensing technology oh my goodness what has the world (laughs) come to but it's really interesting so what would this capsule do exactly would it dissolve and help the releasing or the slow releasing of the gases so the capsule can detect gaseous biomarkers as it passes through the gut all the while transmitting the captured data wirelessly to the cloud for aggregation and analysis. A biomarker is a naturally occurring molecule, gene or characteristic by which a, by which a particular pathological or psychological d- process or disease can be identified. Has this form of testing always been there though? I'm just wondering, I'm asking myself about how effective it would likely be. So traditionally, testing and measuring of the various gases has ranged from, you know, the non-invasive in the laboratory, gut stimulators and indirect breath testing through colonic or small intestine tube insertion, which I might assume is very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. A much more invasive method which would be used to capture stool or gas samples. Okay, this is really great because clearly this capsule developed by this team gets around the problem of invasiveness while also ensuring that the gases can be analyzed in their natural environment. True. The ingestible capsule can simultaneously detect oxygen and hydrogen concentrations as it moves through the gastrointestinal gut and wirelessly transmits the data to an external receiver. Okay, so the concentrations are being detected, but is there anything else around the study that can be beneficial? Well, interestingly, according to the professor, in their early trials, the capsule has accurately shown the onset of food-related fermentation in the gut. And this would immensely be valuable for clinical studies of food digestion and normal gut function. Unfortunately, he says that the trial is currently underway by Atmo Biosciences to test the commercial version of the capsule, the results of which will be detailed in a future research paper. So essentially, the way your fart smells would actually be able to tell us how clean your gut is? 
Um, I believe it will. And also it ties in with the issue of stem of the stomach feeling swollen after eating, basically being bloated. Mm-hmm. It is usually caused by excessive um, gas production or disturbances in the movement of the muscles of the digestive system. Now, bloating can often cause pain, discomfort and, you know, a stuffed feeling. It can also make your stomach look bigger, which is definitely not cute. <laughs> not for a summer body. <laughs> It would be terrible. Mm. Oh, well, um, I guess this capsule has come to the rescue for many of those awkward situations. You could say that. <laughs> All right. So this week's story was sourced from Science Daily and the music is from Ben Sounds. That was unusual, unlikely, unscience. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. This is the Science Inside. Now we're going to a conversation about preparing in advance through planning, engaging, right down to managing a natural disaster. The VIT School of Governance teamed up with the Gauteng Provincial Disaster Management Center to explore disaster risk reduction. This was second this was the second provincial provincial lecture series to further understand the complex interconnectedness between risk and resilience, as well as examine opportunities for risk reduction through climate change adaptation. Last week, Friday, the African Center and Philanthropy and Social Investment held a dialogue on mitigation risk and planning for natural disaster should it strike. Eva Chupa has more on the story. Discussion on Disaster Management Dialogue, moderated by Bongani Bengwa, looked at acknowledging and responding to climate change and natural disasters within the African continent. One of the key themes expressed was how to build resilience to natural disaster. Gertrude Chimange from the Catholic Commission of Justice shares her ideas on vulnerable communities and what the vulnerability means to those affected by natural disaster. When you look at the region itself and how we support each other as peers in a context of vulnerability and in a context of where we have natural disasters. I'm thinking, for example, if um, we're looking at a country where um, there's a context of velocity, there's a context of uncertainty, there's a context of complexity in terms of economic, social, political processes, there's a context of chaos and um, a context of ambiguity. And in that context, you have vulnerable communities. How do you build resilience of rural community people, resilience of people that have been affected in such a context? How do we remain supportive of each other within the region in such uncertainties and complexities in social political processes in the context of human dignity? Because I'm also thinking that when we look at these people that have been affected, sometimes implementation of, of, of our activities is taking people as if they are objects. And, and, and so we, be, we come with already designed programs. We, become, we, we, we come into communities with, with an eye of this is what we need to do without having the people in terms of consultation and what really impacted affects of them. Audience members took center fold in providing ideas of what being ready for disaster means and the frameworks that should be in place due to the fact that disaster strikes at a community level. Mama Krasa raised an interesting issue. I want to say, as Africans, we need to put our house in order. Our houses are not in order. Disasters, we know they are going to come. We are not preparing for them financially. 
because of limited time, I want to start by where I was going to end. Where I was going to end, where I was going to end was, we want to have a disaster risk reduction or disaster management framework a readiness. So we need a readiness framework for disaster risk reduction. Now that framework is simple. So at the top, we have to ask a question, are we ready? So this is your internal question. As I'm going to go through, you ask yourself, your government, your organization, are we ready? So the first question is like, are we ready in terms of high-level political buy-in and championing? We have one champion here. We need more champions to, to drive this idea of how do we respond to disasters? So we've got a champion who is in the elders, but we need champions in the business sector. We need champions in the Air Force. We need champions in the grassroots organizations. We need champions at the traditional leadership level. There is actually a type of all between the politicians and the traditional leadership. And when a disaster strikes, it does not strike at a national level. It strikes at a community level. And they're saying that we need to revive our traditional leadership. Because that's actually these are the people that are on a daily basis interacting with victims of disasters. So that is one issue that I'm saying we need that kind of, of, of commitment. Second, do we have the finance to finance this, the disasters? We can have everything correct. Political buy-in, policies in place, but if we have the money, we're not going to manage it. So I say we still constantly need to ask ourselves, are we ready financially to manage these disasters? I want to end here by saying, the role of the military in the region, okay, defense forces. Now, talk about defense forces, we need to recalculate their curriculum. The new wars of this century are not going to be about Hitler. They are now the wars on disasters. And I say, the army, are you, are you ready as the army? Is your curriculum advocating for this new kind of challenges that we have? Staying at the community level, a panelist explained there's a need to be sensitive to situations within communities as we try to implement disaster policies within affected areas. I hope also in COPA and had some discussions with the traditional leader there who actually said, you know, in the 1950s, in the 1950s, in that area, we used to go up the mountains during the rain season, and so we never stayed the rains were coming. So somehow, somehow, something has gone wrong, because these are waterways surely, as you, are actually, as you actually indicated. Now, when it comes to issues of resilience, community resilience, um, and psychosocial support, it, as organizations and people who are interested in supporting vulnerable communities, I think that we also need to think through in terms of our strategies. Let's do no harm and do some good to these people. I've listened to stories of, of, of men who still visualize how their hands lost a grip of a wife and their children. The voice is still sounding very loud. I still talk and listen to voices of mothers who hold the cloth at their back, lost grip, 
and listened and visualized to the babies crying and virtually dying off. Now, when you come with interventions and strategies, and you say this is a six-month project, this is a three-month project, what are we saying to communities, as Mama, as Mama actually indicated, that we need to be sensitive to the needs of communities and see how the, it actually builds on in terms of their resilience and how to cope with the disasters um, in the pace that they've gone through. Now, the message that I would actually leave, especially for Zimbabwe, is we need to look at our disaster management policy. We need to demilitarize it. Let's decentralize it. And let's uh, politicize the strategy. Andrea Wojnaihera from the United Nations Population Fund explained that the vulnerability of women. Wojnaihera states that women and children should be the driving force in policies regarding disaster challenges because they are the first victim when disaster hits, which creates more vulnerability for their safety and health. Now, the second issue is the vulnerability of women. Uh, we know that women across the board experience greater poverty, greater vulnerability, less decision-making capacity, uh, fewer opportunities for education, fewer opportunities for economic empowerment. I thought it was interesting there was a call to go back to traditional leadership. Well, yeah, no. <laughs> it's all good to have accountability to your community and your people, but some things need to modernize. Some things need to, to move with the times, and that includes involving women in that, in that leadership. Um, in terms of statistics, we know uh, across the board that women tend to fare much worse and lose their lives more often than men in, in disasters, in humanitarian situations. And that's linked very much to this vulnerability. You saw in the film the woman who said, we were here waiting in our homes. Well, because the women stayed there to guard the homes. And they, they were just right in the line of the, the, the cyclones and the floods. And they became the first, the first victims and the first targets, if you will. But they're also incredibly vulnerable once you move them. As you saw in the centers, uh, they're without their communities. They may not even have their traditional leaders because they may have fled in all kinds of directions. Uh, they may not have their spouses. They may not have the, the extended family around them. So they become very vulnerable for their physical safety um, as well as economically. Um, it may be very difficult for a pregnant woman to sit in a food distribution line for nine hours or an elderly woman, for example. This is the Science Inside. That was a story by Eva Chipa where she unpacked the complex interconnectedness between risk and resilience. Thanks to all our guests featured on tonight's show, namely Farida Kaji, Courtney Morgan, Mitchell Black, Jane Cherry and Francois Engelbrecht. Last but not least, our team behind the scenes is production by Lindo Guhetimakwe, Eva Chipa and Tech by Gudwano Sirane. You can find our podcast on vits.journalism.co.za slash science, social media, Facebook as The Science Insight, tweet us at, at, tweet us at VOWFM. The Science Insight is produced by the Vits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Thank you. Good night. The Science Insight Podcast.